Good morning, everybody that's listening to the second episode of A Step Into History, the podcast. I don't know why I said the podcast. I'm pretty sure there's nothing else out there that's A Step Into History. But for now, it's we'll just call it uh, a podcast. Uh, if you are listening to this episode, that means that I have intrigued you with some history. Or maybe you just fancy listening to my voice. Either way, I appreciate you listening. If you remember from the first episode, I introduced myself. I am jace i am your host for this podcast i went over what we're going to be talking about throughout this podcast and what future podcasts could be or future seasons could be of the podcast um we talked about the length of the podcast as well i said about an hour um, and that in actuality it's going to be about half an hour uh, it's going to be a little bit easier to um, retain the information there is another podcast out there uh, called Hardcore History by Dan Carlin. Now, his episodes are around four hours long, and uh, I think it's best if if we just stick to half an hour. That's my my thoughts on it. His podcast is amazing. He goes into great detail about a lot of different things, but they are lengthy podcasts, and you have to devote a lot of time to listen to understand what he's what he's saying. But he is he's got a great podcast. Uh, another thing we talked about in this podcast. I go into the history por- portion of this instead of explaining the podcast. We talked about these ancient civilizations or ancient cities from the Paleolithic era to the Neolithic era. Uh, we talked about some of the possible first uh, civilizations or first cities or towns that have been found. Uh, we talked about Jericho, which is in Palestine, Kadel Hayuk, which is in Turkey, and Jarmo, which is in Iraq, from 8000 BC to 6000 BC. Uh, what were at, at the end of that podcast, we also, or I, not we, just me talking here, I talked about trade routes between each one of these cities, which are hundreds of miles apart. And that's going to lead us into our next part of, or the next, this next episode. Uh, now, these trading routes actually were able to develop a lot of these different cities throughout the, throughout the Middle East area. Um, and one that really prospered was a place called Mesopotamia. You can Google Mesopotamia. It'll show you uh, it's a, it's, it looks like it's about on that peninsula, uh, Saudi Arabia, that type of area. Um, but the whole entire area, it actually, Mesopotamia means between two rivers. So this is between the river Euphrates and between the river Tigris. They're able to flourish in this area because of those rivers help the civilizations. Uh, this place is also known as the Cradle of Civilization. But the thing is, Egypt might have been earlier. We're still finding things from both places. And when I say we, I mean... Uh, we as a people, not me in general, but uh, we have archaeologists that are out there right now that are digging and they find new things. In fact, not too long ago in Egypt, they found uh, a, almost like a pile of sarcophaguses that were just laid underneath each other, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, but that was a super recent discovery right there. Um, now, some reasons we call this place or why it could be the Cradle of Civilization um, is the cities that were developed in this area were a lot more advanced than other places. One of the first cities, or the first civilizations we're going to talk about, is Sumer. Now, Sumer is recognized as the first civilization. Um, this means that this is the first one that they have actually said, this is going to be the first civilization that we've found information on so far. Um, there's documentation. We know that they had a language. We know they had a lot of different things. Um, uh, they, their language itself actually is not li- related to any other language right now, though. So it's really, they have a, a tough time trying to figure out exactly what they're going, going to be talking about within the text. Um, but they can pick out some things here and there. We'll talk about the writings in a second. 
Um, now, the place of Sumer, we knew that they had farming, they had mud brick, they also had irrigation. So they had a system set up, which is why, one of the reasons why they are recognized as the first civilization. Um, this is 3000 BC we're talking about here. Whereas those other cities, they were able to date back to 8000 BC for Jericho and up to, I think, 6000 BC for Jarmo. And, and so this is 3000 years after that, that latest city. And yet this is the first recognized civilizations just because of the deride the writing and all that other things the only things we have with jericho is we've got the structures that are still there that's all we can really tell about um now these people though in sumer they're actually really mysterious we don't know too much about these people they didn't do a lot of uh um extravagant things that made it oh these people are must be known for always um but they are a mystery people now the writing is it's really interesting the writing is like ideograms or ideograms i'm not sure which way you want to say it um but an ideogram is uh, symbols in writing so an example is if the form that they wrote looks like a star then that is most likely meant to be um the sky or heaven or god um it's it's very you know you look at, at pictures to try and tell what they're trying to say um another thing about this place in sumer is that they were the the uh, first people to build these monumental architectures which are called ziggurats now you can google ziggurats z-i-g-g-u-r-a-t-s uh they're pretty fascinating it, it's a pyramid-like structure on the top but then the sides come down at a more sharper angle um they were built to get closer to the gods that that was the goal of these these buildings we know from a lot of the writings because they had those stars symbols that would represent sky or heaven or god um, really quick fun fact about these ziggurats is that these actually predate the pyramids. The pyramids of Giza that we all know about, these ziggurats were before those. And so that's pretty amazing to have these giant structures before the, the pyramids have been built. Also within the city, we have the very first world conqueror. The, the people here, are, there's not a lot of civilization, but there is actual first world conqueror around 2331 BC. Now this guy, his name was Sargon or Sargon the Great. There is a lot of written records about Sargon, but the thing is a lot of these written records or a lot of these different um, documentation we have about Sargon um, that we can look up online any, anytime you want, a lot of them are just based off of legends or tells that have actually develop, developed over the years. Some things that we do know though is that he flourished in the 23rd century BC he ruled ancient Mesopotamia. Um, he had conquered all the southern Mesopotamia areas and parts of Anatolia, Elam, and also Syria. So he had taken over a lot of areas. He had a lot of control. Um, but a lot of these things could be folklore. We're not exactly sure. Um, and, and now, according to Britannica.com, uh, the, these writings we have our saga on were most likely made after his lifetime. So after he's passed away, are these records made? So it's really hard to find out if it's actually the truth or not, because some of these things, which I'll read you a, a quick folktale in a second, but you'll see they're pretty interesting, pretty uh, intense things going on there. Um, now, we all we we do know that uh, his capital city that he made, or the city that he made, um, Agade or Agade, I'm not sure which way to say that one. Um, it actually has not been found yet. They're still searching for this place. Which means that if they were able to find it, it could actually contain real accounts of Sargon. We would know 
what he was doing instead of these folk tales that kind of embellish him and make him um, a lot stronger than um, he probably was. Now, I'm going to read to you guys a little thing from Britannica.com about a folktale of Sargon. Uh, it says, according to a folktale, Sargon was a self-made man of humble origins. A gardener, having found him as a baby floating in the basket on the river, brought him up in his own calling. His father, his actual father, is unknown. His own child name or childhood name is also unknown. His mother is said to have been a priestess in a town on the middle Euphrates. So right there, that little section right there, it's, it's interesting because um, no idea who his dad was. I, there was just a gardener that found him and raised him up. Super humble bringing up, right? Uh, and we continue on. Rising, therefore, without the help of influential relations, he attended, uh, attained the post of cupbearer to the ruler of the city of Kish. You guys, his job was a cupbearer in the city. And that was like a high position. Um, and this, this city of Kish is in the north of the ancient land of Sumer. Uh, they even, or even that brought him up, or brought him to supremacy, was the defeat of now this, I'm going to butcher this name, but it's Lagal Zagizi of Uruk, or the big old term is Eric, or E-R-E-C-K, in Sancho's Um So there, there's there's so many things going on just in his early childhood. Now this person, Lugal Zagizi, yeah, I'm butchering that name. Um, he had already united the city-states of Sumer by defeating each in turn and claimed to rule the lands not only of Sumerian city-states, but also those as far west as the Mediterranean. So they're taking over this whole entire area. They, this Lugazak Izzy, we'll say it like that, um, was really uh, influential on Sargon's life. And then we continue. Thus, Sargon became king over all southern Mesopotamia, the first great ruler for whom, rather than Sumerian, the Semitic tongue, known as Akkadian, was natural from birth. Although uh, some earlier kings with Semitic names are recorded in the Sumerian king list, victory was ensured, however, only by numerous battles, since each city hoped to regain its independence from the Gozagizi without submitting it to the new overlord. It may have been before these exploits, when he was gathering followers and an army, that Sargon named himself. Uh, Shurukin, or rightful king, in support of an accession not achieved in an old established city throughout hereditary succession. Historical records are still so meager, however, <laughs> meager, that there is a complete gap in information relating to his period. So right there, that whole entire thing was just saying that no idea where he came from, but we just know that a gardener had raised him up. He had become a cupbearer to the ruler, who was, uh, his name was the one that I've been butchering this whole time, Lugozag Izi of Uruk. And he basically followed him around until he actually became the next king. And he said, I am actually the rightful king, so I now I rule. Um, now, on Britannia.com, his history does go on. Um, but how much of this is actually true is still up for debate, debate which is kind of funny. Um, now, we're going to jump back to the writings real quick, because the writings change from time to time um, throughout this, this period. Um, writing in this time was advanced 
and or it was advancing and it actually provided a great memory aids for those people um, it went from tokens in the 9th millennial BC uh, pictograms and then ideograms or like ideas um, like I had spoken about above so we have these pictograms these ideograms these, these pictures that people use to to uh, have writings back and forth Right after this pictogram graphs or the ideograms that have been made is cuneiform. Cuneiform is a wedge-shaped type of writing, and it's really complicated because each little dash mark could mean something. And there was a lot of symbols that were used within this writing. Now, writing had such an enormous impact on the human race. This could be considered the most important advance for idea, or the most advanced um, invention in history is our writing or the writing that was developed back in um it was most important for or advanced for ideas um it made long memories and analysis possible for us nowadays too so it's pretty amazing um how writing actually began with this different pictograms and then cuneiform and there's other we'll talk about more uh writings in the near future but this is what was used in that mesopotamia area our days of the week are actually originated from ancient babylon as well um, this ancient Mesopotamia area. We have our seven-day weeks, so did they. We have our 12-hour day, so did they. We have our 60-second minutes, so did they. They actually began it all. We, we kind of copied that. Alright, now, uh, along with all this writings and all these different things that are coming out, we actually come to a thing called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, this is an ancient poem that is from ancient Mesopotamia. And it often is regarded as the earliest surviving great work of literature and the second oldest religious text. Now, this has been pre- has been dated to be around 2000 BCs when this was written. And this is actually the first, first actual storybook or book that had a hero and a villain. And this is found everywhere in Mesopotamia. This thing went around like crazy. The entire epic of Gilgamesh is actually, it's written on tablets. Um, the full extent of the Gilgamesh text is on 12 incomplete Akkadian language tablets. And these are found; these were found in the mid-19th century by a Turkish um, uh, uh, scholar. Um, there are, uh, were gaps within the, the tablets too that were filled in by different fragments that were found elsewhere in Mesop- Mesopotamia. Um, and then in, in addition to this, though, is five short po- poems that were in the Sumerian language um, and they're known from tablets that were written during the first half of the second millennium BC. Um, now, the, the poems have been titled Gilgamesh and, and Huawa, um, or Gilgamesh and the Bull of Heaven. And then there's Gilgamesh and, and Aga of Kish, uh, Gilgamesh in Kindu and the Netherworld, and the, the Death of Gilgamesh. So it's, it's an entire, entire book that's written. Now, uh, just just to kind of go over a little bit about uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh or what it actually talks about in there. Um, it actually begins with a, a prologue in praise of Gilgamesh, who was part divine and part human, uh, the great builder and warrior, a knower of all things on land and sea. Uh, so he was very... Uh, he had a, a, a great power in him and he was kind of a a hothead I guess you could say Um, 
Now, he actually became the ruler uh, or a king um, of, uh, I think it's it's Sumer. Um, now, uh, like the story sa- or in the story it says, uh, to curb his his seemingly seemingly harsh rule the way that he was, the god Anu actually causes the creation of in, in Kingdu, which we that's one of the the chapters in the what I just talked about. Um, who was a wild man who at first had lived among the animals, but after um, after a while in Kingdu, he was uh, initiated into the ways of the city and, and travels to Uruk, which is where Gilgamesh was waiting for him. On the second tablet that's written, this poem, it, it talks about or describes a trial of strength that was between the two men, um, and then Gilgamesh is the victor. Thereafter, though, uh, in Kingdu is the friend and a companion. Um, but in Sumerian text, it, 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 he's the servant of Gilgamesh. Uh, the next tablet, uh, the next uh, tablets three through five, are the two of them who set out to go against Huawa or Humbaba, the, the divinely appointed guardian of the, a remote cedar forest. Uh, but the rest of the engagement is not recorded in the surviving fragments, though. In tablet four, uh, six Gilgamesh. Um, he has returned to Uruk. Uh, he rejects the marriage of proposal of Ishtar, uh, who is the goddess of love. And then, uh, with Akino's aid, he's able to kill the divine bull that sent that was sent to destroy him. On Tablet Seven, uh, in Kindu's account of um, uh, of a dream that he has, in which the god Anu, uh, Ea, and Shamash decide that Enkindu must die for slaying that bull that was sent down to, to kill Gilgamesh. Uh, Enkindu then becomes ill, dreams of the house of dust that awaits him. Uh, then Gilgamesh's lament for his friend and the state funeral of Enkindu are, are narrated within tablet number eight. After Gilgamesh makes a dangerous journey from tablets nine to ten, um, he's in search of the survivor of Babel, of the Babylonian flood, um, which I'll probably butcher his name too, but it's Atnapishtim. Um, and he's doing this in order to learn from him how to escape death. He doesn't want to die, right? Uh, he finally reaches this guy, um, Atnapishtim. Gilgamesh is told the story of the flood, what happened, and he's shown where to find a plant that can renew your, renew his youth and, and he can live forever. Um, which goes on to chapter 11, or tablet 11, not chapter. Uh, but after Gilgamesh obtains a plant, it's seized and eaten by a serpent. Now Gilgamesh remarks, uh, still mortal, or, or returns uh, to Yurik still as an immortal. He doesn't become a god. Um, then, within an appendage to the epic, uh, on tablet number 12, it relates the loss of objects called Puku and Miku, which is, it, it could be drum and drumstick, uh, that's what a lot of the scholars are thinking, which were given to Gilgamesh by Ishtar. Then the epic ends with the return of the spirit of Enkindu, who promises to recover the objects and then gives him uh, a grim report on the underworld. So this is just like a quick overview of that. If you have any desire to actually read it, you can actually find it on different websites, of course. Um, the thing that's fascinating about this is that um, there are stories within those stories that are being uh, told in that poem. Um, now, uh, we went over a quick version of it, but there are some people that I want to point out that it didn't actually mention um, what we just went through. 
Um, now going deeper into the story uh, on one of Gilgamesh's um, adventures that he goes on, he he finds a guy by the name of Shamash Napshiptim, who is uh, whose story is very similar to Noah. Um, you know, we talked about a flood, the Babylonian flood that happened. This is almost the same story as Noah. Um, another guy that isn't spoke about, it, or that is spoke about within the epic, is Tabi Atola Nil, um, who has a really similar story to Job, and then Tagtulk, who is uh, similar to the story of Adam. So there's these different stories that are shared that relate to the Bible too. So it's all it's interesting to see that. Now we're going to actually step away from these the storybook writings, those different types of documentation, and we're going to talk more about um, a law code that we that that has been found that shows us they had an actual civilization set up there. Um, at this time, they had a thing called the the Hammurabi Law Code, which is from 1792 to around 1759. Around that time is when they the, uh, scholars have decided when this happened or when it was written. Um, now, this Hammurabi Law Code was actually the earliest written law code that has been found. And the way that it was written, or the way that they distributed it to the city, it wasn't on pieces of paper and handing out because they didn't really have the different types of papers that, that we have today. But instead, so that everybody could understand what the laws were within the cities, um, they had written the Hammurabi law code on uh, basalt steels, which were these long black rock looking things that you can look up Hammurabi code on the internet and uh, it, it has a picture on the top of Hammurabi, and um, the laws are written right below that in the different types of writing they had. The basics of the law, though, were eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. It was that type of law, and that's what they expected everybody to be following. But the thing is that what was enforced was not always what was written. In fact, we see this through a lot of different history times, a lot of different times throughout history, I mean. The higher class would get less punishment for laws that were broken um, versus somebody that was a lower class. If they broke the same law, it was not the same. Uh, there's a quote that says, Rule of righteousness, destroy the wicked so that the strong should not harm the weak. And so the focus is on that higher class. They're trying to keep the ones that are uh, the top people, keep them good. Uh, there were different uh, uh, social statuses that were that were up there too. The punishments that fit the crimes, that was supposed to be what was happening. It was supposed to be rough justice, those type of things. But if you were higher class, it wasn't that intense. Lower class, you would get very harsh punishments. You would get rough justice. It would be really tough. And these are places throughout the city like I was talking about. Now, there's a lot more information on Mesopotamia and Sumer and all these different places that are uh, the land between the rivers. Uh, well, we're actually going to switch gears um, and we're going to end this episode uh, just finishing off with Mesopotamia and uh, the next episode we're going to talk about Egypt and Egypt there is a lot of information for Egypt itself uh, so I hope you enjoyed this podcast uh, going over Mesopotamia going over diff different types of written literature that they had back then and the different architectures they had uh, but keep listening to the next episode. I'll get that one ready. It's probably going to be, out, be about each week. I'm going to release an episode. That's my goal. So I hope you guys enjoy this one and continue listening. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>